What's up, family? It's your boy, Daniel James II, and I'm your host right here on Black Voices on the Hill. Black Voices on the Hill is a podcast and radio show for the culture. We center Black lives, we amplify Black stories, and enhance the Black experience at Cornell University, Greater Ithaca, and beyond. Black Voices on the Hill topics range from racism, police brutality, colorism, sexism, to Greek life leadership, and white elitism in the Ivy League. Black Voices on the Hill envisions a Cornell that's sensitive to the plight of its Black students, aware of the Black excellence in its college town, and unabashed about them changing the world. We see Black excellence at Cornell. We believe in Black empowerment, and we love the Black experience. Listen, Black Voice on the Hill is brought to you by WVBR News. To see when more new and upcoming episodes and for other Cornell and Ithaca news, be sure to follow us at Black Voices on the Hill on Instagram. Be sure to follow WVBR FM News on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Be sure to visit us at our website, wvbr.com slash Black Voices. Subscribe. Leave us a rating review on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, Tune in right here on WVBR 93.5 every Friday at 2 p.m. And the podcast episode releases the following Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Listen, I have a very, very special guest in the studio today. Um, She is hallowed and hailed, but she is an amazing Black woman. Um, and she's an amazing uh, guest to have during our celebration of Black History Month. We have none other than Cornell's professional and graduate student elected trustee, Miss Liz Davis Frost. Say hello to the people, Liz. Hi. Oh, is there going to be like a clapping? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like starstruck right now. This is so cool. I feel like I'm like listening to what I listen to in real time. <laughs> I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm just in awe. Uh, so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course, Liz, Liz, I'm loving the glasses this morning. I'm loving the background, your room. Thank I'm you. just, I'm loving everything, the aesthetic. I um, I also, you don't know this, but you have been uh, asked for a oh. lot this year since I started the show. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, you've been asked for. So um, I just want to ask you, though, you know, I know that you are known as a graduate, you know, trustee on this campus. Um, so a lot of people respect you, look to you for leadership, guidance, et cetera. Um, but, you know, today's our sort of first time being acquainted with each other. And so I just wanted the audience to get to know a good grip on who you are, your roots, maybe where you're from, before we get to Liz, you know, 2022, who you are today. Um, I, under- I understand you were raised... Um, by a single black mother, which I can yeah. also relate to. Um, so tell me, who is Miss Liz Davis Frost? Tell yes, this is always the hardest question because it depends on what day. <laughs> um, I'm Liz. Hi. Um, I use she, her pronouns. I was born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama. Single black mom. Her name's Lisa. She's great. Um, my name's actually Elizabeth with an S. So Lisa is in my name because she is she's like that, (laughs) but I love her. Um, yeah, I came here to Cornell 2016, my freshman year. It was, a. I feel like my, the six years that I've been on this campus have been, I don't even know how to explain it. I I mean, it started with the Trump election and then went to like the Kavanaugh hearings. And it's like, I was on campus November, 2016, right? Like I was a freshman in Dixon sitting there watching it with like 
my friends. Um, and then the Trump election was also, you know, my first year of grad school. So I've just like been here for a hot sec. Um, but the the Liz that I guess people here know is is the same, but also different than the Liz that my friends from back home um, knew. I guess I grew up in like a very, very white community. Uh, my mom actually moved me from a like Bir- like Birmingham city schools to the school system that I was in third through um, third grade through senior year, just because it was like a better school. But also like Alabama's ranked 49th in the country in public education. So even if I did go to like one of the best schools there, there's um, a, a lot of inequity, obviously, which I guess is me jumping ahead to one of something we're going to talk about later is my, my passion about education. Um, but yeah, I was very active. I've always done a lot of things. I think that's also the ADHD, but I can't help that. Um, I don't sit still that often. And I cheered for 12 years. Um, I was like really involved with Relay for Life in high school and did that a little bit my first two years here as well. Um, always have just been like a people not a people person. I think because I was raised by a single mom and was so active, I was always very close with like my friends' parents. Um, and so like one of some of my good friends from home are 55-year-old women <laughs> that I still talk to on a weekly basis. Um, and, and so, yeah, I don't know. I, I was a, co- a communication major in undergrad. Now I study uh, public administration social policy is my concentration. Um, yeah, I, li- I like to listen to music. <laughs> I feel like I'm given like the fun facts in class. I'm really bad at that. No, I love it. Yeah, th- those are the things. <laughs> Goodness gracious. There's so many things I could tap into. Um, let's start with, I think the, I think, first of all, you're from Birmingham, Alabama. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm from uh, South Carolina. Yeah, yeah. I'm from South Carolina. So I understand somewhat, yeah. somewhat. Mm-hmm. Um, I think being a minority in a white space um, is definitely amplified since I came to Cornell because believe sure. it or not, a lot of black people still live in the South. So um, I, I wasn't, I, it wasn't rare to see black people. I, I was you know, raised around black people, but I definitely uh, understand what you're talking about in terms of inequities that exists in right. the South, especially when it comes to being a black kid um, around privileged white kids. Totally right. get that. Um, single black mother experience. I can also relate. Um, I'm, I'm my mom's only child. Uh, Me and too. I, was, I know. I love cool? being an only. Actually, no, I don't. Why did I say that? Oh <laughs> well, I definitely didn't like it either. Um, I definitely wished I had a playmate growing up. But like your experience, I grew up like a university kid because my mom, worked for like a decade at a higher at a um, regional university and so all of my friends my mom's friends were professors and staff and people like that so I have 55 year old friends as well so um, don't you love it there's so much (laughs) wisdom isn't there so much wisdom yes but they're also so messy (laughs) oh my goodness oh my goodness um and so but I want to ask you though I mean you talked about being a minority um being a black woman in particular uh, and just how you were unaccustomed or accustomed, you're accustomed to to being a minority in an educational space. I mean, talk about before we I ask you why you came to Ithaca right. to have that experience again. I just want to ask you, like, 
what does that mean? Some people don't even know what are those because there are white people listening to this. And they're like, what, what experience are you talking about in Birmingham? And I know what you're talking about, but they may not. Right. I, this is always such an interesting question for me. Um, when people ask me like how I became the person I am today, I say, if it were not for Kendra Bischoff um, intro to sociology, my freshman fall, I, I wouldn't be where I am today. Um, I actually had a very opposite experience from you. So I didn't grow up around like many black people at all, actually. Um, cause I like, I'm an only child. I also don't have, um, that much family. Um, so congestive heart failure runs in my family. So like my first like 10 years of life, we're just going to a, like a lot of funerals. Um, I actually just wrote a paper for one of my, uh, like this class I'm in called diversity and leadership, where we were like talking about our upbringing. Um, and and I was reflecting back on like the first couple of years of my life. And I don't really remember that much outside of like coming home from the bus stop at, as a six-year-old and watching reality TV until my mom got home. And then also just like going to funerals. Right. Um, and so there's so much to un unpack there because of how our inequitable healthcare systems impact our community. Um, and when I got to Cornell, um, actually, maybe I shouldn't start there. So I will say that my identities were not as salient to me or were not salient at all to me until I, until I got here, until like my sophomore or junior year. Um, I, you know, I was cognizant of the fact that I was like one of the very few black people in spaces, but it wasn't like a, I wasn't like recognizing oppression or recognizing injustice actively as like sub 18 years old. Right. Um, it wasn't until I got to Cornell and started diving into, you know, like I was an inequality studies minor. Right. So taking like these sociology classes where I was like, oh, there's this thing called the cycle of socialization. That's literally a poster. Like that thing right there is like the cycle of socialization on my wall um, where I like started to like reflect on my experiences and then connect the dots of like systemic oppression and institutionalized racism and how it impacted me as like a, a tween and a teenager. But like growing up, like that was not like something that, that I thought about. Um, because I, I was always just very comfortable in white spaces. And I, I think in this, also in that paper that I wrote, I said, half of my personality definitely comes from reality TV. Like when I say I watch so much reality TV to this day still, like, um, so I've always been like very comfortable talking to anybody, um, you know, and I think I, I now recognize like the tokenism of my, uh, secondary primary and secondary education experiences. But it, I just, I, that wasn't like something that I was consciously aware of. Um, so it wasn't until, I really think like when I really started to like be like, oh my God, <laughs> this was not great, was actually summer 2020 when all of those 55 year old white moms started calling me like every day. And they were like, Liz, what's going on? Like, we love you. What are you talking, like what's happening? And then I started like thinking back at all of the things that happened like K through 12, where I was like, oh my God, like, this is it. You know, like when you study it, it's, it's not until you like connect those dots for yourself where it becomes like super, I, I guess, salient for you. So like one of the main examples that I think about a lot was like dress code, right. In high school. And also like I cheered 
and I'm not to toot my own horn, but I'm, I'm working with some things. <laughs> so like my skirts were always significantly shorter than everyone else's. Wasn't my, wasn't my fault. And so like my, like my cheer coach, I would have to go like a size up in skirts where they were like obnoxiously big on me. Okay. Right. Because of like how my body was sexualized as a teenager and all of these like different things. Gotcha. And similarly, like I got in trouble for dress code all the time, but like, and I, I wasn't comfortable with my body until like junior year of college. So like in high school, I wore oversized t-shirts and leggings every single day, but I was still getting dress coded every day. Right. Because my oversized t-shirts were shorter in the back than the front because yeah. Um, and so maybe this is a long-winded way to answer your question. But yeah, I if it weren't for the, the Cornell education that I have to be able to like unpack and unlearn and like really digest these things um, comfortably and uncomfortably, like I I would never know. And so I think it's hard to talk about like my experiences without relating them to like my current circumstance. Does that make sense? Um, because it's, it's just, it, you're, not, you're like, I'm not taught those things. And, you know, like growing up in Birmingham or grow, I, my school was what, like 10 miles outside of the city and like never once took a field trip to the civil rights museum or like anything. Right. And like not being taught about like, black history for real for real like in school like I um I'm very very close with my grandparents my grandparents are my best friends and um my granddad my and during college or during undergrad I spent every February break with him and we would go to museums um and granddad and I go to museums all the time like he's a nerd and so so am I so it's it's good but he he was shook when he realized I had no clue what a freedom rider was until he told me that his mom was one and I was like what and he was like, how did you not know that? And I was like, uh. right. <laughs> like, like that. So it's, it's, it's that type of stuff. And it's, it's hard, I guess, like, um, you know, like still connecting with friends and people from my past who just like also can't connect those dots for themselves because it's so ingrained in, in what you're taught in school and also like what's around you, all of the, the factors of, um, the cycle of socialization. So I don't know. It's wild to think about. I think about it all the time, all the time. It's what I study. So, so yeah. Uh, Deep breaths. Liz. <laughs> I mean, there's so much there. It's like so many black kids. First of all, like women's by black women black girls not even women right. black girls bodies being sexualized at such a young age typically by white women too because yeah. a lot of the times the teachers are white women is like such a such a profound experience um heartbreaking experience so yeah. relatable so raw too that's raw and so so vulnerable for you to share thank you for sharing that of course. Uh, because I, I i can tell you i've I didn't have that done to me, um, but I, I've witnessed it amongst so many of my black female peers uh, mm -hmm. who didn't have any sort of recourse because who right. you gonna turn to on the white female teacher? You gonna turn to the right. white administrator? You know, so. Well, if you turn to them enough, they get tired of you. <laughs> that's, I think that's also been my because I, I have um, 
I'm really, I think it's the only child syndrome. I like don't do authority well. <laughs> and so like, even in those spaces, like by my senior year, I was like, listen, I am wearing a two XL long sleeve t-shirt. No, you're, I'm not getting dress code today. And at, by that point I had like established myself so much at the school. Um, and I often talk about when I, when I talk to people about just like how I, I, again, like how I get to where I, where I am, can't talk today. Um, it's like this subtle assertion of dominance that people don't really realize is happening. If you know what I'm saying? Mm. Where it's like, I'm really personable and it's really hard not to like me. <laughs> so it's like, if I, I become besties with my teachers, right? Like I was very close with my principal in high school. So it was like, if a random teacher dress coded me, I would just walk by right up to the principal's office and be like, listen, this is not happening today. And they were like, Bet. fine. Bet. <laughs> and you do it in, you do it enough times they get tired of hearing your voice. And so, but I also recognize like my privilege in being able um, to do that considering like this, the space that I was in. Right. Um, because I was like that tokenized, like I was that tokenized black girl in my, in my school system. Like I cheered for 12 years and I was the only black cheerleader that ever went through my school system. Like all 12, like the whole time, the only one. Um, and it was like, so all of the parents were like obsessed with me. And I'm also obsessed with myself. <laughs> Not in like a conceited way. I think it took me a while to get to the point where I am today, where I don't feel bad about liking myself and don't feel I feel like one thing that like black women experience a lot is when you are confident, like the people try to tell you that you shouldn't be and, and that you are conceited and you're cocky. And I'm like, no bestie. Like y'all tried to tell me that I wasn't it for a long time right. at the same, while simultaneously like uplifting me on this pedestal and then getting mad at me for recognizing the pedestal that you put me on right. and like refusing to get down. Right. Right. Um, That's a little yeah it's powerful um those microaggressions are often are often described uh to black people but in particular black women mm -hmm. um and I, i'd love to see you take that and turn that inside out i just want to say that uh the <laughs> other powerful part about what you said was concerning you know just being from the south it is so interesting how you can be surrounded by relics of history you can be surrounded right. by history you don't even know that you're literally walking through like jim crow monuments yeah. zones that were you know th this is not a black community or a black part of town but because of no reason this was right. this was a a function That's in segregation <laughs> literally literally it's, it's present segregation but it's right, also right. been that way for a long time right. um even the black high school that's in my um hometown um that i went to it was you know founded in 1866 as a black charter school because we weren't allowed to go to mcclinic and, and i had black teachers who were older who had to go to this new black school or were weren't allowed to go to that white school. And I had right. older white teachers who were their peers now who went to the all white school and remember when it was segregated. So it's wow. funny. Now, South Carolina is not as nearly as um, a historic, you know, monument to the civil rights movement, et cetera, as Birmingham, Alabama. But, right. you know, it's it's so. interesting how they they like concentrate all of these. It's like they hide, they hide it in a museum to not not to say go there but like um keep it there 
Absolutely. Hey. It's hidden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's hidden. Yeah. So like, how do you, I don't know, how did you grow up to understand, I guess like why, why come to, why to come to Ithaca and, and I guess like face the possibility of being another minority in a very privileged white space? Like, I guess, how did you, how did you prepare yourself or was it just an easy transition that you sort of already had tools in your toolkit? So it was actually a very, it was a, I didn't realize how, I'm trying to watch my mouth. (laughs) Um, I didn't realize how messed up Cornell was as a campus again until like, I had like this massive social awakening my junior year. And I think it was um, a combination of a lot of things. So I think it it was sparked with the Kavanaugh um, confirmation and also like my leadership position, like I was involved with the uh, Women's Resource Center. Like I was on that executive board when it shifted to the Gender Justice Advocacy Coalition that we have now. So I was like the first president of that. And it was partially through like us taking a pause from all of our programming. Cause like we had like what, like a $60,000 budget at that time. And it was like a mostly white women board. Like when I joined the board, it was like 18 people and like three people of color, right? And so we were like, if this is going to be our mission, if we're saying we're going to support marginalized communities, then we, we're not really doing what we need to do. So we need to like rethink this and take a second and just like reframe everything we're doing, right? We rewrote all of our founding, like our, all of our documents and everything. Um, but to answer your question, like when I first got here, like, again, I grew up around all white people. So it was like no big deal, right? Like I, I rushed, right? Like my freshman spring. So I was in like, I was in Tridel um, and I rushed to white sorority because that's what I knew. Like all of my friends at Alabama and Auburn were also, had also already rushed. So I was like, okay, word, like this is what I'm going to do again. Like, I don't even think I was comfortable when I got to Cornell being at Cornell was being around the most black people I'd ever seen in my life in one area. Right. <laughs> like yeah. I'd never been around this many black people before. And that was scary as hell because I was, because it's always when you're, when it's ingrained in your head that you are like the Oreo or whatever, I was like, am I'm not even black enough to like be in these spaces. Like, it, like here's a good one. I had never had a black female friend until I joined Tridel. So until I joined my white sorority that had five other black girls in it, in my PC, I never had a black female friend in my life. Except, well, I had one, her name's Jazzy, shout out Jazzy. She just graduated from Harvard, but she moved from our school in like sixth grade. So like all through high school, I never had any black female friends and I don't have any cousins. Like I don't, like I just actually recently started becoming really close with my sisters. We share, we have the same dad, but we have different moms. Um, And so we just started becoming close like this year. Like I just got back from a trip with them yesterday. Um, And we would go to like the BSU events together, the us five black girls and try it out because I I think they all also had similar experiences. like like rushing an MGFC sorority like had never crossed my mind, even though my mom went to Alabama A and M, and it just like was never my experience. Yes, yeah, she did. She okay. she's obsessed. Um, and so I think it was 
if it were not for being GJAC president and reassessing what that organization wanted to do and having to actively outreach to communities of color and to marginalized communities on campus to like better fulfill our mission, I wouldn't have like been comfortable in those spaces, right? Um, so I also was like involved with consent ed. And so like my, when I was uh, the vice president of programming my junior year, that was the first time that we ever given a consent ed presentation to the alphas. And so it was like me, like using my identities while also growing into my identities to start like doing this outreach and like making those connections. Um, I wouldn't, again, like, and, and it's so hard for me to say because it's like, I think like being in this position that I am in right now and like having been a student leader and like actively frustrated and hating everyone in the administration, right? Like and as an undergrad and now being in this trustee position while I'm also studying public administration. So like learning how bureaucracy works, learning like, like I'm taking like a fundraising grant making and lobbying class right now. Like that was my 8 a.m. And so like sitting in like these finance meetings, sitting in these buildings and properties, like trustee meetings and like connecting all these dots at the same time, it's like, okay, this institution works exactly how it's supposed to. And I know that, and, and I have like really close relationships with a lot of administrators and I know they're trying their absolute, like a lot of them are trying their best while also working in these like ridiculous confines and restrictions, given like the institutional history and the fact that we are at an Ivy League institution but also being like very, very aware of how difficult the Cornell experience is for so many of us. Like I was on full financial aid during undergrad. And when my financial aid didn't come in on time, shit, I'm, I'm waiting for my stipend right now. And I'm like, where's, <laughs> how is my nice sex bill getting paid this month? Let me call my grandma. Um, you know, like it's such a hard um, dichotomy to navigate. Um, when I was talking to you earlier before this, before we started recording about how I want to do a podcast, I think my communication major background, my favorite comm theory was cognitive dissonance, because I truly think that's like what life is. It's just like all of these conflicting principles. I just quoted Lil Dicky. That was a Lil Dicky quote. <laughs> I can't. Um, so many like conflicting principles at the same time. So if when I do my podcast, it will be called cognitive resonance. I think <laughs> I like that. that I think I'm hilarious. I know it's ridiculous. Yeah, um, hilarious. But yeah, it's I, I don't know if you can see like the wheels turning in my head because I like truly think about this every single day. It's like things can be great and awesome at the same great and horrible at the same time and it's so like hard to live with those two truths at one time when like you're reaping the benefits and also like facing consequences at the same time um yeah i feel like i answer your question and then i go on a rant no, <laughs> sorry i love it and there are so <laughs> many parts to address i think it's interesting either coming from a black space being black and coming from a black space into a um a predominantly white space or having come from a almost you know all white space to come into right. a more diverse space right. it forces you to come into and grow into your identities in both right. instances and it's like weird to say that like 
I came from Birmingham, Alabama, and I had never been around this many black people before. Like saying that out loud, I'm like, that just doesn't make sense. I must say, I must say that it's surprising, but it's not, you know, it's your experience. And so many, and, and, and you would, you would be surprised. Well, you might not be, but (laughs) I was surprised to find how many black people on Cornell's campus have that very same experience because they're some of our, our activists now, you know, there's some of like the forerunning black voices, but they know the issue, I guess, all too well. They've seen this before, so they can, they have ways to address it. I also think, um, yeah, you need to be in those rooms where we're talking about money, uh, where we're talking about bureaucracy. Often that is the, the threshold between being a vocal leader and an effective leader on yeah. this campus. Ooh, there it is. You said and, it. And so, <laughs> and we don't realize that. And it's not our fault yes. because we were taught that's not the space for us. Yep. Right. But you as a trustee, go ahead. Fine. Since we're there, since we're there. I'm Let's serious. go ahead and talk about what compelled you. What compelled you to think that running for graduate trustee, and this is not an indicting question, even though we have phrased <laughs> it, but but you know, as a <laughs> and what compelled you, I'm but serious. like to run for student elected trustee, why did you yeah. feel like what you had? Uh, I mean, you had the background of Gender Justice Coalition, um, Women's Resource Center, uh, working on campus towards consent ed, uh, yeah. things of that nature. How did that lend itself to you saying, all right, let's run for student elected trustee? Yes. So I will get to the answer, but I have to back up a little bit because I got to say, please. So my senior year was spring 2020. <laughs> and my senior year sucked. Like my senior year of undergrad was awful pre-pandemic um I was really really sick I was on like SSRIs that did not work for me like I like I I just got my ADHD diagnosis like in September um and so I was getting like prescribed medicine that just like was really like messing me up I like I lost 60 pounds on my hair fell out like I had two sprained ankles at one time Liz's body was just like shut team shut down but i was also on five e-boards and working five jobs like i was busy 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 um and then the pandemic hit um and i was like well there goes literally everything that i worked for i can't team give up like like march march 12th which was actually the day that the free period products campaign that i'd been working on for two years that was supposed to launch on march 12th and I'm getting I'm emailing facilities and they're like okay this pandemic thing is happening like do you want it and I was like yes put them in the bathrooms and they were like no Liz like school shutting down and I was like I I can't um and then I on April 7th which was the day the classes went back online I fainted in the shower and got a really bad concussion and it was my fourth concussion because I got three when I cheered during under uh, in high school um and so I was just like sitting in my room and I was like, my birthday is in 11 days. Like I, everything sucks. Like emo hours was every hour. <laughs> like it, there was, and I also like hadn't been applying for jobs. Like I had no post-grad plans because the pandemic, like even before the pandemic, I just like was down, down for the count as my grandma would say. Uh, and so after I got concussion, my grandparents were like, yo, like you, we need to get you out of there. Like you can't 
this is not the place for you anymore because um, I was planning on staying in Ithaca until my lease went out. So my grandparents come get me. Uh, well, I fly to my, my grandparents' house and they live like northwest suburbs of Chicago. So I fly there. I'm there for like two weeks and me and Grams drive back down or fly back down to come and pick up my car and drive back up and, unpa- and pack up all my stuff. I literally packed up all of my stuff from my senior year apartment and put it in a storage unit. No plans. Um, so I'm like sitting there in Chicago, freshly concussed. And I'm like, so I, and it's the pandemic, so I can't go outside except like me and Graham's like went on walks every morning, which was like really dope. And I like kind of got my life together ish, like started doing yoga, started like really taking care of myself. Um, and I, looking back, I like now see that that concussion was the best silver lining. The concussion in the pandemic was a silver lining for me because I really needed to chill, chill, breathe. I needed to breathe. Um, and I'm getting these emails from the MPA program and I'm like, listen, like, I don't have any other options. Might as well apply. And keep in mind, like I got a concussion April 7th. So I left Cornell with 18 incomplete credits and they still accepted me into this program. Um, So I like find an apartment, this apartment in like two weeks. um, And I got accepted like what, like mid June, I guess. And if it weren't for that wave GRE requirement, like I would not be here. I didn't take the GRE or anything. Like it was very luck of, very just God placed it in front of me and said, here you go. <laughs> Congrats. Um, and that's really how I got to point out the first time I, um, cause I was part of your other question. I wasn't even like considering coming here. I didn't even know what Cornell was. Um, and my grandparents were like, send us whatever college emails you like, let us know, like make a list. So I sent them the list at the end of the week. And my grandma calls me. I was like, Liz, Cornell's on your list. Like, what are you doing? Like apply. And I was like, Grams, this is just like a spam email. I don't know. What and she was like, no, apply to this school list, calm down. Um, so January 1st, 2016, um, I'm on the Cornell website, go to the first college that I saw was Cal's alphabetical order. Uh, look at the majors in alphabetical order communication <laughs> was a C picked it, applied, got in like it, none of it was planned. So I get here. Um, and I'm like bored. Like I granted, I started, started my real housewives bench may 2020 i just finished all 10 cities like i'm now caught up with all 10 cities a year and a half later i'm very proud of myself there was like a period of time where i was watching like 10 hours of real housewives a day can't say that i'm proud of it can't say that i'm not proud of it but here we are um and i was just like sitting at my house like it was the pandemic was the first time since i was 14 years old that i wasn't working 20 hours a week right like all through undergrad i was sending money home to like help my mom pay bills And so I was just like, I need something to do. Like, I can't think straight. I am bored out of my mind. Didn't have my ADHD meds yet. So I was just like watching TV, sitting on my couch all day. Um, And I get the email about the student, the grad professional elected trustee position, um, because that election was supposed to happen in the spring and got canceled because of the pandemic. So got pushed back. And I was like, I mean, why not? Like I did everything else. I was frustrated in those meetings. Like, why, like, why not? Like I have the connections with like, like I was always, I was close with Lombardi um, my senior year and now we're like very close. And, and it was just like, I need something to do. (laughs) And I feel like I would be good at it. Like, I know, like I was really close with the seniors from last year. Like I know that I knew that I'd be able to do a good job and I also needed something to do. Like I, I didn't work my entire, I didn't have a job my entire first year um, of my MPA program. I now have two jobs again, but 
we're here. <laughs> that is absolutely amazing journey. Shout out VP Ryan Lombardi. Yes. I know he's we not love black, Ryan. but still we'll give him a shout out. Um, <laughs> uh, that's an amazing journey as well. And just so resilient, but that's just so like, that's so also like black women, you know? Yeah. Um, why not? Right. Because you've already done the groundwork. I think that that's the best thing. The best thing that you bring to the position is not a desire for the position, but a desire to do the work uh, and a, a real passion about issues. Uh, so you talk about these issues, right? I think to since this Black History Month, I want to talk about, because you really had a platform based on equity, accessibility, yeah. and accountability. I want to talk about the anti-racist aspects of that. Um, yeah. And also you could talk about the provision of free menstrual products because I think that that intersects with black women and mm-hmm. um, in in the inaccessibility of you know healthcare products. But I really want to talk to you about you know committing this commitment to make Cornell anti-racist and mm-hmm. more diverse in its faculty is hiring a faculty right. BIPOC faculty. Why is like I'm in the ILR school, right? So we have little to no black faculty. Yeah. I want to ask you why does it matter? to have representation um, in terms of black faculty, maybe even students, but especially faculty and staff. And then how do we retain black professors? Because that's also a part, problem they always yeah. have. They don't want to stay here, right? No, it's too cold. I don't want to stay, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> um, I think it's important because I have a hard time with saying there needs to be more voices in the room because I really think that more of us us should be able to just chill. Um, And I really wish, like, I know that I wouldn't be who I am today without like doing all the things that I've done. But sometimes I'm like, I really wish I could walk to campus, come back home, watch some TV, make dinner, go to bed, do my work, do my work, then go to bed, you know, like, And I think without having, and I think it's a double-edged sword because without, you know, the people who are, who are doing the work, there's, there's literally no possibility that we're going to be able to chill in the future. Um, And so I think about like my work is like setting up the, the foundation of people being able to just rest. But I also like have a hard time with saying that out loud as well, because I feel like every black woman um, before me has also said the same thing, right? like in wanting to celebrate that black joy and wanting to just like, and I, and I don't think any of us are ever capable of me being mediocre. So I don't want to say like having mediocre black women, but just like having black women who aren't like holding everything on their shoulders. Um, I think the representation and just like diversity of thought and experience is so important. And I think that is probably the most valuable thing that I've brought into like my leadership spaces is because like one, like community is everything to me, right? So I'm like gonna take the time to ask you how you're doing and check in and like understand like what's going on with you and your world, regardless of like what you are and and trying to like, and I think this is like where my, my comm major comes in is trying to find those like, find the ways that we can bridge those gaps and like meet common ground. Um, and it all starts with having a conversation. So the more people that you have like us in the room, the more conversations are happening and the more people are talking. Um, and I don't think that every conversation necessarily has to be about 
anti-racism explicitly, right? I think where we have, um, it just like what I've noticed like in the past couple of years is that we don't take the time to humanize people before we start coming at them and demanding things, regardless of how like important and like necessary those demands are. You're not gonna get anywhere if like the person that you're talking to doesn't see you as a human being. And that's like hard because like some people like just naturally aren't gonna like acknowledge your existence and recognize that like you're worthy of being in this space, but just like taking things like a step further and being like, listen, like we're all on this campus and we're all a part of this campus community. And maybe your experience in this campus community has been lit and that's great. I'm happy for you. Love that for you. Go, go to your hockey game, have fun. But I also want to go to that hockey game. Right. And I also want to be able to enjoy the same things that you enjoy. And it's not because I don't want to, that I'm not doing that. Here are the reasons that I can't do that, that are different from the reasons that you can't do that. And taking those steps to get there and having that conversation to get there instead of straight up being like, I can't go to the hockey game because Cornell's racist and inequitable and I had to go to work, you know? Um, and so I think like without having those conversations, like you really can't meet people where they are. And, and it's hard again, because that burden of meeting people where they are and taking the step to do that is always on us. Um, but, but yeah, I think also the reason that it's hard for us to like retain black faculty outside of the fact that it's really cold and it sucks how cold it is. Unless you're a person who likes the cold, good for you, congrats. That's not me. Um, but also like there's not community here for them either. And so also like recognizing that like Cornell isn't just like Cornell Ithaca campus. Like we are also like very big parts of the Ithaca community. And how do we also like connect those dots and like have more collaborative and and community oriented environments where we can like have, because like the black community in Ithaca is like popping, right? And like, they also like have needs and like things that we could both, I guess, like mutually benefit um, from. And so I don't know, I don't have any answers <laughs> and I don't know how to solve it. And I can't like claim to, to solve any problems, but I think what I can do and what I can like what I do well is just talking and being a listener and being a friend. Um, I'm really big on um, decentralizing authority and just like disrupting hierarchical narratives. So like one of my jobs right now is I work with VP Lombardi on his student leadership council. Um, his undergraduate student leadership council. And like one of the big things that I've like pushed on from the beginning is like, listen, like if you come in a space just like with PowerPoint lecturing people, like that's already creating a power dynamic, right? And like, we're not, when, since when have power dynamics worked for us? Not just for me as a black woman and for you as well, but like in general, like power dynamics don't work. And whenever there's a power structure and whenever there's a hierarchy, there's gonna be somebody that's pissed about it because they're not being hurt. And so we have to create a space where, and I, and I think it's like, so I also am like very anti-professional, anti-professionalism because it's just like, it's hard for me not to like, 
to just get straight to it, you know? Cause I'm like, this is so inauthentic. And what's like, what's, I'm not here on this planet to just be like grindo mode all the time. And I think that's like something that we're all seeing so much um, as like, we're still like in this pandemic state. Is it like being grindo mode all the time is like really hard and exhausting and like not sustainable. And so how do we create a culture and like foster culture and like honestly like empower people to be willing to just like be a person and like be a human and just like have conversations as such, right? Like I imagine a Cornell where it's like, yes, there's going to be like student activists and student activism, but that's like not like a personality trait, right? Like we're all just members of the Cornell community actively working towards making this place bearable for all of us. Not because of like, and I, I know that's like very idealistic or whatever, but like truly I'm just like, Whereas I guess this is me being like, I hate America's individualist as culture. And I wish that we could be um, more collectivist and really see like outside of like ourselves and like our own circumstances and think like more grand scheme. Like when, when there's, when Cornell has like anti-racist tendencies, then you're always going to have tension on campus. Like it's, there's always going to be some students that have a toxic relationship on campus, like with the university. And that just doesn't impact those students. It impacts everybody. Like when students are pissed and stressed, rightfully so, and they're coming at administrators, that's also making administrators stressed because they're like, okay, what do we do? What, what do we have the space and the scope to do? And then those administrators being stressed, that's going back to home, right? Like that's stressing out their families. And it's just like, the, the more the less that we like answer these questions or at least try to answer the questions or even like have the conversations about what the problem is, right. Or what the question is, it's like releasing stress and tension for all of us. Like there's, I just feel like there's so much like pent up aggression and like, and not saying that it's not valid or rightful, but it's just like, there's just so much tension. And if, if we're not talking about it, if we're not having those conversations and it's just like there, and so it makes sense that people are like mad and resentful because there's no outlets to take it out. I don't know. Another ramble. No, that's so good. Um, I would definitely agree with the impediments to progress are often like rooted in the bureaucracy, those power dynamics, those these which are made up anyway, which right. are made up anyway to exclude people, which are made up anyway. Right to ensure that um, we have a top-down culture and not a horizontal leadership. I mean, it's, yes. it's really real. Thank you for challenging um, him or them in that space because that that takes courage as well. And a lot of people would just sit there. But um, the one word I thought about when you were talking was like, she's a disruptor. And then lo and behold, <laughs> you said disruption. So... <laughs> I love that disruptor in the best way, because right, there's also right. a use of that word in education that um, I recently read an article about public education that um, disruptors um, were, you know, the, the corporate heads who were actually controlling and funding education, which segues me into public education. Um, I'm taking a U.S. Uh, a labor and employment and U.S. public education class right now. 
we're talking about, you know, minority school outcomes, charter schools, you know, no, le- no child left behind policies. Yeah. Great. Um, what backed at the top pro- race to the top programs, Arnie Duncan, right. All these people who really structured um, this narrative that teachers don't care. They're not doing enough. Teachers were better teachers. Students would be have better learning outcomes when the truth of the matter is if our schools were better resourced because the primary indicator of student success is not even their individual SES, but the school SES. So if they were resourced better, we would have, that would, you know, produce better learning outcomes, but, and testing the, the, the mess out of students does not, you know, help them in the long run, but nevertheless, nevertheless, Ah! you (laughs) Um, you have a, you're pursuing a master of public administration. Like you talked about your main interests are, um, what educational reform, I think. So tell us, first of all, how you reiterate that transition from communication major to policy. And then how does that lend itself to policy? And then what are you trying to do with this educational reform lens of your education? So um, nothing in my life has been a transition by choice. (laughs) Um, Reginald White is the employee elected trustee and I'm obsessed with him. He's great. Um, He's unfortunately leaving us. Not unfortunately, he's going to a different school. Um, But he once told me, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. And that is, I feel like there's like a constant laugh track in his ear when every time I like try to, plan something out because <laughs> it never it never happens the way I expect it to. Um, when I actually first started my public administration program, my concentration was human rights and social justice. Um, and I guess that just like made sense coming right off of summer 2020, how to declare uh, a concentration. It shifted to social policy with a focus in education when I started my trustee position and really started getting into it and getting into the crux of it. Um, because I never really thought of higher education as uh, like an administrative system, if that makes sense. And then I started taking these classes like public administration and like legal aspects of public agency decision making. And I'm like, the bureaucracy here is out of this world. Um, and and it, it's it blows my mind every day. Like it, it just truly is so complex and so nuanced. I, I doesn't understand. Um, I think one of the things I love about being a trustee is that it is truly the best practical learning experience for what I want to do because the, Cornell doesn't have like an education major anymore. Right. So they're like already very minimal education classes and, and being um, like an administrator or being like in a, a trustee on a board, that's an administrative position. And so I'm not getting like those, like I'm not taking like higher education administration classes because they don't exist, but I'm like actively in the classroom every time I'm in a board meeting. Um, so I think that's super dope. And, I, and I'm and i very, very thankful that I have that opportunity. Um, I think the reason that I'm so passionate about education reform, it's not, it's not even, it's education reform, but more so like curriculum reform and partially selfish because like Liz has had six concussions in her lifetime. Like I've had three concussions in the past two years. Okay. My brain does not work the way, the way that it used to work and that's okay. Um, and I also have recently gotten this ADHD diagnosis, which is also okay. I think where we get stuck is, is this very Eurocentric 
these very Eurocentric education norms and standards that we just like agreed are what should exist. And you kind of touched on this a little bit with like testing doesn't work for every student. Like one of my SDS accommodations is Liz doesn't do multiple choice, like period. Like I, you can, I will do a zoom call and you can ask me questions and like, like I ramble a lot, but I'll eventually get to the point because that's just like how my brain works. That's the ADHD. That's the concussions. And you, and that doesn't mean I'm a bad student, right? Like I'm, I'm brilliant. Okay. But the way that like these like super standard Eurocentric like systems function, it's like, I will, I will always fail. Like I will, like the GRE, the ACT, like did not, were not, no. (laughs) And that's just like, and that's okay. And it doesn't, isn't a measurement of my success. And so like part of my research is uh, questioning and like redefining what like assessment measures and standards like look like for students. Um, And we're already seeing like data coming out now that like these gen alpha kids, like the 12, 10, eight year olds, are not going to be able to sit in a 300 person lecture and focus. That's just like a fact. <laughs> um, they're not going to be able to like be cranking out papers after papers after papers. And, and honestly, well, another thing that we're learning from the pandemic is that that's inaccessible and also kind of ableist. And so how do we like prepare ourselves and prepare our institutions to be agile enough to to meet every student where they are. I think we always are trying to be like to blanket everything. So like what like one example, what is happening? Sorry, my landlord just is doing some something outside and I got distracted. Um one of the things that like one example of that is like the universal pass fail, right? Super great for a lot of people and also like validly so like not great for some people. But that's okay. There should be options for everybody. And just because we don't have the answers of what that looks like now, setting students up so that they can find the answers for themselves is really what I'm all about. And so like, if it were not like, and like I said earlier at the very beginning, I will bother you until you give me what I want, period. Like, (laughs) like, that's just like how I am. I'm not going to take no for an answer. And I am, I think student disability services is the best department at this university. They are so great. Actually, so like one of my, um, this is me going off, but like one of my concussion symptoms is I'm very, very light sensitive. And so it's really hard for me to sit at my computer and write a paper for 10 hours because my eyes hurt. And with the ADHD, if I don't write it in one sitting, it's not gonna get done because my train of thought like it doesn't exist. There's no track. So you know how like Kindles, making a lot of noise here. Kindles have like the e-ink SDS just bought me an EE monitor that has no backlight. Beautiful. So I can put this monitor up and boom, like that's it. But like, it took me, I, what my first, like the first concussion of college was April 7th, 2020. It took me two years to get this. And so how do we, one, like support departments like SDS that are doing this groundbreaking foundational work and, and connect them with departments like the learning strategy center. Right. And like, Um, the Center for Teaching Innovation, who are like thinking about these things and like paying attention to like the upcoming research and the pedagogies that are saying like, yes, like an anti-racist and critical pedagogy is essential and, and, 
and necessary for like the future generations of students, but also like you have to give students the tools that they need, individual students, not at all students, that they need to be able to be successful in those type of learning environments. Um, and so that's what I'm really all about. And I think it's really hard for older people to acknowledge that that's that's a need without saying you Gen Z and millennials just complain all the time. Um, I think it's really hard for them because they never had the chance or the opportunity to really advocate for themselves the way that we do. Um, you know, I think I think we sometimes forget how sh strong and deep generational differences run and we don't. And, and granted, it's really, really hard, especially because of that, like age power dynamic when they like talk to you like you're seven and you're like. No, <laughs> um, but like what, like this uh, summer 2020, when I was with my grandparents, my grandma and I were like sitting there watching I and mean, we were in like the uh, suburbs of Chicago, but we were like watching the news every day. And we would have all these conversations. And my grandma was like, Liz, you're too radical. Like if I said half the shit you said when I was your age, I would have been lynched. And I was like, you're not wrong, grandma. You're not wrong. And, and it's through like me and my grandma, like had one having like a really close relationship, but like also like us showing each other, like the mutual respect that like, yes, our experiences are very different, but also very similar. And like, there are things that we can learn from each other. I think one thing that, um, IDP has this in one of their community agreements is that like we're all learners and teachers in the same space, right? Um, and so that goes uh, ties into like this disrupting um, hierarchical norms and like decentralizing um, hierarchy and decentralizing authority within the classroom as well. I think it's also super important. Um, I could talk about all of my ideas for education for hours, but I think we really have to, we can't start with just like, more funding for schools or like better teachers. It's really like why, who, what, who learns and how they learn, why people are learning, what they're learning and like what they need to learn in a, in a successful manner. And like being comfortable, that's my reminder to take my meds, um, being comfortable to like question and challenge. I keep using this word agile, but just like being okay with the fact like we're going to have to rethink this literally every year. And that's okay. And I don't think any of our systems are set up to do that right now. We're just like, this is how it works, period. If you don't fit within this, then that sucks. And you have to go out of your way to find something that works for you. And like when we have an increasingly neurodiverse, but also like more people being aware of, of their mental illness and more people being aware of like the things that they need, like we can't stop that. And it's, and it's frustrating when you tell us that we try to stop it when you're the ones that advocated for it, you know? Absolutely. Good yeah. Time. So much there again. Lots so of thoughts. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about, I was reading an article yesterday for class again about um, unfinished learning and how mm. these Gen Alpha kids you're talking about, I mean, they're going to be, I think, just by statistics, you mm -hmm. know, now, if we have those tools you're talking about in our toolbox, we can overcome these statistics. Right. But the statistics do say they'll be four months behind in math, five yep. months in reading. And, you know, it's like 1.5% um, behind or, or um, 
less math or less reading and math proficient for white kids, but how much more so for minorities, black kids, right. like nearly 3% Hispanic and Latinx kids like two. So yep. yeah, it, the inequities are across the board and the pandemic just made it frustrated the yep. historical inequities all the more. Uh, so, but I'm bringing Dean Love next week. So uh, maybe we'll get to talk about these things. What would be a question you want to ask her? I would ask how she is being supported in her initiatives and who is supporting her. And if she's not getting the support that she thinks she needs to be successful, then what can we do to help her get that? support um i think it's great that our dean of students is a black woman but that's a lot of freaking pressure for her and we've been talking about bureaucracy and we've been talking about like the madness that is this university and like she doesn't have like the magic fairy godmother wand to like fix all of these problems and so I think like one thing that would be beneficial for all of us, like as students and this like student leaders and, and student activists is to like really pay attention to like who and what needs to have the pressure applied to them. It's not always just the faces that you see the most. Um, it's not always the names that you know. And we should be, we should take a step back to try to see things more big picture so that we're being effective and not just not just loud like you were saying earlier because it is it's it is so much more nuanced than any of us like i don't even understand it half the time um and i think one thing especially for the people who are on the ground doing this work is we don't have unlimited bandwidth and we don't have unlimited capacity or unlimited energy right. and nothing no like no movements go are wasted but i think we can be for our own sake right like i'm tired we, i know you're tired we're all tired um and so when we are doing the things that like we need to do just making sure that we're doing them in the most strategic way possible so we're not exerting energy into places or not putting energy places where they aren't going to go necessarily as far for a slew of reasons. It's a great question. I'll be sure to ask her. She'll probably hear it before then, but that's a great <laughs> question. That's a great question. She's great. Oh, yeah. yeah. Too. Um, Liz, we're over an hour. That's crazy. Uh, I just want to ask, you know, What's next? Or do you have any closing thoughts that you want to leave the people? Those types of things. What's next? I don't know. <laughs> I applied to PhD programs and then I got another concussion and I'm like, I don't want to do that again anymore. Um, so we'll just see. I'm taking things step by step right now. Um, really, all I can do is take things one day at a time. I don't. I, when I try to plan too far ahead, I. I can't. So I, I'm really just day by day. What's next is my international evaluation of programs and projects class. <laughs> um, and final thoughts, take a nap and breathe, actually, 
just like I think I and I can't speak for everybody but me personally I'm like I can't let myself do this because I'm going to be stressed about the other things that I'm not doing if I'm just like taking a break. And I often feel like guilty about the breaks that I take because I know that there are so many other things that I could be doing. But what I'm in the process of figuring out right now is there's always going to be something else that I could be doing. Like my to-do list is never going to be completely checked, right? Like I'm never going to be like, have nothing to do. Um, And so like when you need it, like just take, take the space. And don't just say take the space, but like actually take the space. I think it's really easy for all of us to be like, and not just, I think we get frustrated with like corporations and like people in positions of power being like, oh, like take care of yourself, like mental health, blah, blah, blah. But I think we're also like really, really hard on ourselves. Um, and I just think we should give ourselves the same grace and space that we urge people to give us, which is easier said than done, obviously, but. Make make the bread, make the focaccia, watch the episode or all of the episodes. I'm very behind. I'm actually, I lied earlier. I have like four episodes of Real Housewives of Miami to catch up on. And I may do that tonight instead of doing my public finance problem set. But we'll see. We'll see how far we get. Um, that's all. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. Of course, listen, we got to meet in person. We definitely. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. I would love that. How can the people stay in touch with you? Uh, via social um, Follow me. I, you know what? I'm, I'm really bad at the internet. <laughs> the internet. 2000 emails behind right now. So don't email me. Um, I can, I answer my DMS sometimes when I see them. I think it took me like three days to answer, answer Daniel's because I just didn't see it. Honestly, I, I say that I pester people until they answer me. Just pester me. I really think I don't, I don't, it doesn't bother me. Um, if you want to get in touch, just get in touch and I will, I can't tell you when I'll answer, but I do always, <laughs> I do always answer. So yeah. yeah. Good stuff. I have her, her phone number now so I can reach her directly, you know. I can reach the trustee directly. This is an well, honor. My, te- my phone number is in my email signature. So that is the easiest way to text me. If people do email me, like I, I don't care. <laughs> there we go. There we go. There we have yeah. it. Listen, y'all. It's been Miss Liz Davis Frost. Oh. I love your podcast voice. It's so like... <laughs> Ricky Smiley in the morning show. Believe, oh God, you listen to Ricky Smiley? Okay, all right. Oh yes, he went to high school with my mom. That's <laughs> crazy. He sounds yeah. like he's from Alabama. He Br- is. Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah, he sounds like it. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, this is actually not mine. This is my real voice. I mean, I'm not doing anything different. Or anything. Oh no, I know. It's just great. I'm obsessed. Okay. <laughs> I, like you were I, made for this. You're like, like you stop. were made for this. You're stop. doing it. Stop, please. I'm obsessed. I, I'm annoyed by my voice, but nevertheless. What? Uh, <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> you wouldn't have all the followers in this platform if that voice wasn't that voice. Well, you probably would if you had a different voice. You know what I'm saying? 
Thank you, sweetheart. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Listen, y'all. See what more new and upcoming episodes of Black Voices on the Hill. Be sure to follow at Black Voices on the Hill on Instagram. Follow Liz Davis Frost. Um, you can follow her personal page. Follow her her um her uh her campaign page as well. I think it's don't do that. Don't do it. Don't do it. Okay. My Instagram is Liz the two E's meme. Liz the meme. Liz the meme. Okay. There we go. So don't follow. Don't follow that trusty page. Follow the I mean you can if you want to, but it's hard. (laughs) I can't I can't keep up. Your platform still up there? Yes. Go take a look at that, y'all. Go take yeah. a look. I think it's interesting. I think it's good. Uh, be sure to follow at WVBRFM News on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Visit us again at our website at WVBR.com slash Black Voices. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, over at literally every podcast platform. And subscribe to our YouTube channel. And follow us on Twitter. We got on Twitter a couple weeks ago. So tune in. Tune in right here on WVBR 93.5 every Friday at 2 p.m. and the episode releases on podcast the following Tuesdays at 11 a.m. We'll see you next week. Shout out to my executive producers, Mike Seitz and Grace Fairchild. Peace out, family.